0: Welcome to Deep Dive, Coaching for Creatives with me, Coach Cami. In each episode, I'll be covering the basics of deep inner work, the hardest and most important work you can possibly do for yourself. I have been where you are, stuck with self-limiting beliefs and an inner critic on overdrive and no idea how to get past them. I've done this work on myself, for myself. I know how hard it is. But I want to make it easier for you and help you become your best self. You deserve it. I can't wait for you to meet my guest, Karen Faith. I had the privilege of meeting Karen in 2019 at a How Design Live workshop in Chicago. I also got to see her give her very first TED Talk live right here in Kansas City not too long ago. And I hope you look it up. It's definitely an idea worth sharing. Karen is an ethnographic researcher and founder of the empathy training company Others Unlimited. Our discussion revolves around empathy and listening and how empathy is quite different from sympathy or compassion and why everyone would benefit from empathy training. Ready to dive deep? I absolutely loved your TED Talk. I can't wait until it's released to the general public and it's out in the wild and I can link it. Um, In the meantime, I would like to delve just a little bit into that, but also into the stuff that you didn't particularly cover in your TED Talk, because Mm -hmm. why not? (laughs) Yeah. I want to delve into listening and the art Mm -hmm. and the act of listening. There's so much more to listening than just not talking.
1: Absolutely. Sometimes there's a response, even in empathy practice of saying, oh, I understand. Oh, yeah, I know. I know to say I know to somebody when they're telling you something that you can relate to. And I try to encourage folks like when you say I know to somebody, you're closing them down and you're saying I've heard enough. And instead, keep listening and keep asking questions until you don't know, until you get to an unfamiliar place, which is so interesting, so much more respectful of diversity and respectful of the uniqueness of our experience. Let's talk more about that in a minute. But the other thing about listening is that You know, when we think about listening skills, a lot of us have been taught, you know, to to make eye contact, to nod, to reflect back what we've heard. And those things are ways of communicating that we're listening, but they aren't actual ways of receiving an understanding, you know, and that's a really different thing. Communicating to you that I'm paying attention is important, but I can do all those things and still not really hear you. (laughs) So what you know, are some so ways I, then that, that I can really
0: communicate and really show you or, or practices that I can do to be more actively listening?
1: Well, I don't want to give away all my secret sauce, but I will tell you that when I, when I do the listening class with people, the first two exercises that we do, the first one, we listen, we listen to in person we listen to each other with earplugs in on zoom. We do it on mute where I just asked, just look at them. What do you see in their body language, in their posture, in their eyes, in the way that they're speaking? What are you seeing emotionally? What are you seeing? You know, not to make a, assumptions and project a bunch of stuff, but just connect with this person. Like, don't get lost in the words. Don't lip read. Don't try to guess the story. Just how do you feel in this person's presence? How does it look like they feel? You know, and just make some, we have make some notes about that. So we, yeah, we do it quietly first. And then the second part is, then I have them do like an interview where I have them draw a diagram of what this person is going through. And that is asking someone to process and then translate what they're hearing into a completely other format, a nonverbal format. And that's where it kind of forces your brain to shift gears and actually chew on this stuff. I love that. And the fact that you're you're inviting people
0: and training them how to take what is really an, an a subconscious process and make yeah. it conscious and intentional, yeah, that is yeah. juicy good moving on to empathy and you being a you doing empathy training, tell me a little bit more about what that is like,
1: what that experience is like. It starts with redefining what empathy is. I think that you know the very first part of this experience is. Clarifying that when we're talking about empathy practice, we are talking about empathy as a practice, not as an emotional experience or as a specific emotion, that it's not the same as sympathy or compassion, that empathy is a practice of stepping out of my point of view and into the point of view of someone else. And usually that clarification um really bust people wide open right away because it, it invites so many other different kinds of experiences. And then, and then I talk about um, what I call the four twists, which is that what I meant, what I said, what you heard and what you understood are four different things. Oh, wait, every, go, say those again slower. What you, what I meant, what I said, what you heard and what you understood are four different things in every communication. That's so So true. In a very good communication, there's similar things, but they're still different. And in a bad communication, I mean, we know what that's like, you know, how it feels to be misinterpreted, misquoted, or when literally the technology shorts out and not all the words got through, you know, there's so many different reasons why these distortions happen, but then we start taking those apart and we start really, um, it, it builds so much empathy to just understand that, everything in between two minds is impacting the message and that that isn't necessarily anyone's fault, that it's actually inevitable. Oh, yeah. And when we can see that, then we can start to ha- be gentler with each other and be less judgmental with one another.
0: And that's, that's where the connection comes in. In, in that space is where you feel safe to be vulnerable. Yeah. And where, where a real authentic connection happens. Yes. You said something I want to go a little bit deeper into that empathy is different from compassion and
1: sympathy. Can you go a little bit more into detail about that? Yeah. Compassion is the welcome byproduct of empathy practiced well. Compassion usually requires empathy. Empathy doesn't require compassion. When we think about empathy, a lot of us, you know, kind of imagine that this is a gentle response of kindness to someone who is suffering. But suffering is not the only experience we need to understand. Empathy can and should be practiced in order to understand what makes a person feel strong and joyful and confident and and creative. Those experiences are just as important, maybe more so, than only understanding what's causing you pain. Um, Of course, understanding pain is super important. And when we do understand pain and we're also considering the context of that pain, we may also experience compassion. Well, some of us don't. And that is, um, there are all kinds of other reasons for that. But, but to use them synonymously um, does them kind of both injustice. So when we talk about empathy practice, I talk about it in terms of a cognitive skill of expanding your point of view and being able, having the flexibility and the versatility to take off your own glasses and put on another pair, you know, that's what it is. Mm. And how do you think creatives
0: specifically could benefit from empathy training or, or even empathy, empathy practice? Well, when you say creatives, that's, um, that means a lot of people. Yes. (laughs) To me, it means everyone, but the people who have, who have actually tuned in and listened to this podcast would consider themselves creative. And I think that's the only differentiation right now.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that it's, it's most obvious in experience design, you know, when I look at um, sometimes really beautifully designed experiences, which um, are kind of, uh, a mismatch for the audience. You know, they might be a beautifully designed experience for the wrong person, you know. And and so empathy practice, in, you know, in a very practical and tactical way is putting on the shoes of the person that you're designing for or with and, and really having that experience and making sure it, it matches. Um, I think that from a, let's say more, for lack of a better word, a selfish point of view, I think for creative people, a lot of times, you know, I, I also went to art school and felt I was expressive as a creative person. Um, and I experienced as an artist that my artist, my art did not reach people in the way that I wanted it to. And I didn't understand that for a long time as a young artist, because I was, I was speaking my own language. And I, didn't really know how it was being received or what that sounded like to other people. And it wasn't until I started kind of being in the audience more that I started to recognize if I really have, if I really want to communicate this message, I need to make sure that I'm speaking it in the language that it can be received. And of course, I I don't mean to imply that all art needs to be fully accessible to everyone and every, because I think there's something really beautiful about abstract art and, and, and really kind of obtuse art that just sort of stretches you in that way. But, um, but for me, I had something that I really wanted to land and it wasn't landing. And so I think that empathy practice for creatives, even in terms of personal expression is so valuable because I felt so much more connected to people when my message was being received. So that was kind of a blind spot for you, something you didn't know you didn't know. Yeah,
0: absolutely. What other kinds of blind spots do you experience in
1: in the work that you do? Oh, boy. Um, how much time do you have? I, <laughs> one of the toughest parts about being in the position of, of sharing work, which is so vulnerable and intimate and personal, is that, you know, I am also still a human being with a gazillion trapdoors in my psyche and in my heart, and I, I try to be upfront about the fact that I am not living a life of perfect harmony, and that I don't. I am not empathetic in every situation. I also have, you know, I have the same hard stuff that everyone's had. My close relationships, my family relationships, my, you know, the, my fears, and the, you know, I have my triggers too. Practicing empathy helps me through those moments but it's also it's harder for me not to judge myself because i mm. i think i'm supposed to be good at it or like better than other people at it yeah. and i'm not <laughs> I, yeah
0: I, I that blame finger points at me as well uh-huh um i was on a call this morning with i had to transfer some some like and we're changing a a 401k to an ira and i had to get on the phone with financial people and I lost my patience at one point, and and then, as as karma would have it, they asked me what my email address is, and it's like good juju, Cami. Oh God, isn't that awful? I have to say, isn't that awful. It's good juju. Ah, oh, shit. Yeah, but you know, it's a reminder. We're we're. I think everybody is. Everybody struggles. Everybody has blind spots. Everybody.
1: <laughs> everybody is imperfect. Um, Yes. And also, let me just point out, too, that empathy is not about being nice, too. I mean, um, and this is something that I'm actually dealing with in my life right now is that empathy, practicing empathy also requires me to have really good boundaries. And having good boundaries means that I say no to some people who don't want me to say no to them. And it might make me seem like I am not nice or not kind or not giving. But I will not have anything to give if I don't protect what, you know, protect my own sense of self and my own mm-hmm. privacy, all those things. And it's, it's really tough because also my name is Karen. Oh, I bet you got and, a lot of slack during the pandemic. And I, feel, I feel like I am constantly being expected to be really rude. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I feel like I have to overcompensate for that by being like the nicest, kindest person anyone's ever dealt with in their life. And I can't do that all the time. It's I can't. Do, I had a situation with my bank, my business account, my banking business account, where the account was due to a mistake on their end, shut down for 10 days, which is completely untenable. And I was not hearing back from them. You know, even my clients, a client contacted me and said, we tried to wire you the payment. And it said that your account has been compromised. So now my client is insecure, you know, about this really. And I, I was calling and I wasn't getting response in enough in, you know, timely way. I was trying to be as polite as I could be, because, of course, they also know what my company does. And (laughs) and so, you know, I finally I ended up uh, raising my voice. I mean, not in a cruel way, but, you know, in a establishing my boundaries way where I was like, no, it is not okay. You may not. I am not going to allow this anymore. It felt terrible. Cause I just, I don't ever like to do that. And I, you know, it got in my head about what must they think. And he probably got off the phone and said, oh, this empathy trainer named Karen, you know, and, <laughs> and it was, um, it was the worst, but, you know, after several conversations that I had to process this experience, I recognized that anger isn't itself wrong. It is not itself destructive. It is not itself abusive and that anger is occasionally appropriate, and also an important emphasis to creating and enforcing a boundary at times. It's not a comfortable place for me, but it's something that I'm working on in my life to be able to say, no, you may not. And I am angry about it. And to do that in a way that's also still respectful, you know, Mm -hmm. that still honors the, the humanity of the other person and while also taking care of me.
0: It's important to take care of you because no one else is going to put you first. You got to put you first. Uh, It's been my experience that anger, anger is a sign that, at least for me, that there's some kind of injustice, Hmm. that there's something, um, some kind of boundary that has been breached Mm -hmm. And, and not blaming a finger of, you know, I let it, I let the boundary lapse or somebody else's boundary wasn't, you know, wasn't where it should have been. But anger for me has been, hang on, is, is this what is absolutely necessary in this situation? Is something wrong? Is someone trying to wrong you? Is that, is there something there? And maybe that's just me, but to me, anger is, but there's a boundary that's been violated.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we had spoken a little bit about, about parts work, you know, these parts of ourselves that have different responses. And I, and I kind of feel like when my, when the part of me who is easily angered, or who seems to be easily angered when, when she's coming forward, she's usually been back there for a while trying to tell me something's wrong. And you know what I mean? And I haven't been listening. And so she's got to get really loud to let me know. I was not kidding. You know, she's making a boundary with me. (laughs) I was not (laughs) kidding when I told you that I did not want this anymore. And I, and I kind of try to receive that part of myself with curiosity, you know, like you're saying like, Oh, okay. It's there's been, there's been a breach. Let's find out where it is. What's happened here. Um, without just like fully giving her the steering wheel and letting her run us off a cliff.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Yes. There's, there's lots of, um, passengers in my bus as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and I am just within the last five years now, I'm the only one allowed to touch the steering wheel. And for years, it was the inner critic and anger because I'm an Enneagram eight. Do you know anything about Enneagrams? I do. Well, I'm an Enneagram eight, also known as eight holes. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, Eight holes default to anger. And that has always been my protective mechanism
1: is. "Mm." You know, my, my funny Enneagram story is that um, a therapist of mine, who i had been seeing for years she she once asked me if i had taken the anagram quiz and and i said no and she was like oh you know i'd be really interested to know what you're come up with and i got i got angry at her i was like you know, Anna, I've been talking to you for three years about everything about my life. If you do not know, if you're trying to type me into this thing, you know, I'm like, I can't be typed. I am I am a specific individual person and I can't believe that you want to put me in a box like this. And she said, you're right. You're totally a four. <laughs> <laughs> the four is like the individualist that doesn't want to be labeled. And, um, and since I read, read up on it, she was totally right.
0: I love Enneagram 4s and I have more Enneagram 4 clients than any other number combined. And I'm also married to a 4. Interesting. Yeah, yeah well, very we like to do our own thing. Oh, yeah. And the 4s are the most complicated. They're the, the most misunderstood. Yeah, so my my heart bleeds for 4s and and when I yeah, when I've taken Enneagram tests, I you know, obviously an 8, but boy is 4 really close behind. Mm-hmm. The thing I like mm-hmm. about Enneagram is everyone is a little bit of everything. It's yeah, yeah. What coping mechanisms do you do you employ at your worst and at your best? And that kind of helps you understand how you how you operate in the world, what your defaults are, what your innate strengths are. So mm-hmm. I love I I am probably going to be a lifelong student of the Enneagram. I don't think anyone can know everything there is to know about it, but boy is
1: it fun. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I, I tend to, you know, as an ethnographic researcher, I, I pushed hard against things like personas and archetypes for a while, because I was all about, you know, let's, let's stay with the specificity of the individual, you know, let's, let's work with people who are really unique and, and honor their uniqueness. And, um, and so I kind of resisted those things for myself too. even, you know, Myers-Briggs and other kinds of typing tools that I was just like, I don't want to, I don't want to be in this, you know, and yeah. I will say though, even after all of that, that the Enneagram does seem to have a level of, of insight and depth that has been useful in my life. So it's not, I don't like to, and this is, I mean, this is actually a really much bigger topic. I don't like to evaluate things in terms of whether they're right or wrong. I like to evaluate them in terms of whether they're helpful or unhelpful. Yes. And it's information and the Enneagram has been really helpful.
0: Yeah. It's information. Well, and Myers Briggs, I am so fed up with Myers Briggs. It was developed like over a hundred years ago by a mother, an adult mother and a mother and her adult daughter as a way to um classify her her daughter's suitors. So yeah, I did not know that yeah, origin there's, story. Oh my god. And it was, a, it was the first dating app. It was. And <laughs> It's it's not based in science. She was not, you know, specifically educated for this. And it's so contextual to label. And to me, it's it's harmful because when when you call someone an an introvert and they don't believe that they have the capacity to be more than an introvert in any given situation, they're constrained by this label. And I, it's so harmful Um, I'm right in the middle. I'm probably lean more towards extrovert, but to recharge, I totally need like no people silence, darkness, get away from me. Um, so ambivert, whatever. And I think most people are, but when you, when you say in all scenarios, you are this way exactly when Mm -hmm. you are, you might be an introvert in a room full of strangers and a complete extrovert with people you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And all the, and all of the little intricacies even past that. So
1: I I have a, I have a grudge against (laughs) Myers-Briggs. Absolutely. My experience the first time that I took an exhaustive um, diagnostic test and I, I couldn't answer any of the questions because for me, every answer was, "It it depends. It depends on so many things that are so obvious to me. I'm like, does it, I remember asking my therapist, can anyone answer these questions? Is this, is this just me? Or like, how do other people answer these questions? Who could possibly know all of these hypotheticals and feel confident about choosing one of these only four options? You know, it's just really, um, yeah, I was, I was problematic.
0: <laughs> I am problematic <laughs> as the, as the Enneagram eight hole, um, and a good example of a, a really unhealthy eight is Donald Trump. It's my mm. way or the highway, and if you don't like it, then obviously you're a bad person. Yeah. Um, yeah. A good example of a healthy enneagram eight is Dr. Martin Luther King. He was mm. the the advocate, the voice of those underrepresented. He used a very forceful personality and um, to to highlight the injustices and. Injustice and betrayal are our hot buttons. Um, mm-hmm. So most Enneagram eights are like, don't you mess with those kittens seals right off the table. Kids get away from them and mm-hmm. and we'll stand up for those where, and that's how eights move towards being, you know, a beneficial, um, healthy is when we're moving towards two and twos are the nurturers, the caregivers, the, all of that. That's
1: my, that's my second
0: strong one is two. Mm-hmm. twos. Oh. Well, that makes you perfect for an empathy trainer. Let me
1: tell you. (laughs) It stinks, though. Let me tell you what. It's really, it is, I have to do a lot of what I call emotional hygiene. um, Because I am such a, I'm like a Velcro for feelings. (laughs) So I just collect them everywhere and got to you know, got a lint roll myself every day. I do kind of want to return to something that you were saying about not letting your other ones drive. Sure. I understand that sentiment, but a friend of mine who also does this work um, has often told me that he really likes to let some of them drive sometimes because it's fun, you know, and he's just like, you know, there's a part of me that really likes to party and that's not my most balanced and wise self, but Hey, we're all me. We all, we all want what we want and I'll let him drive sometimes. And that's, you know, I just do it consciously where I'm like, and then I think about times where I, it was another anger moment. It's so interesting. We're talking about that so much today. Um, an anger moment that I was having, I got really mad. Um, it was a health insurance situation and, and I, and I, and I knew I needed to just take a walk. And so I was, you know, walking outside And I was, I was really steamed about it. And I didn't know. I didn't have anywhere to put that anger and nobody deserved it. I mean, no one person, the whole insurance system, maybe, but no one person deserved it. And, and I didn't want to give it to my sweetheart who was, um, you know, waiting for me to get home and be kind. And I, and I was just kind of walking and I, and I felt really stuck. And I just kind of said to myself, do I have anyone here who could do a better job of handling this right now? That's and brilliant. Another version of me popped up and was like, yeah, I got this. And I, it was the anger melted. And this other part of myself who was rational and calm and present and, um and had a, the, the a perspective that was much higher altitude than where I was. And she came on immediately and was able to just chill me out. And it was because I just asked, you know, you know, is there anyone on the team who can handle <laughs> this better than I'm handling it at the moment? What a and beautiful I... question.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. God, I love that. That is such a beautiful question. It's and it's leaning into curiosity. Yeah like it's yeah. like
1: saying okay now what yeah yeah i my kind of what i call my moderator i define as being you know infinitely in the present moment and also objective in a very not in a cold way but then you know the most fair observer of everyone and every everything that's happening this access to a, a rational mind in the present moment and the one who's making the choices this one is helpful for deciding and listening to these parts and what they need. And so I think sometimes, yeah, she can say, all right, you give it a go. You know, like when I have to go out on stage, I need that extrovert. I've only got one or two of them in there. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I need, and I need her to come out there and enjoy yourself, you know. Does she have a name? No, I
0: haven't named them. It's so funny. You might instead of instead of naming them, ask them what their
1: names are. Oh, interesting. Because yeah.
0: that's how uh, all of the ones that are inside me, that's how uh. I figured out their names. they They very much told me, and yeah. on my and I think I told you this on the way home from the TED Talk, I was a demon behind the wheel. I was people were being stupid, driving mm-hmm. in the middle of the lanes, taking up two. And, um, you know, ugly things are coming out of my mouth. And at the time I, I just like, almost like a matrix moment or a, or a, um, Dr. Strange moment where he shoves people back out of their bodies and you get this new perspective. Oh, and it was yeah. like, oh yeah, good juju cammy. Uh-huh. Sure. And, um, <laughs> I'm like, okay, who are you? And, and the moon was full and I looked over to my left, the full moon shining in my window and this voice just said, Luna okay, Luna tick, let's go. (laughs) You don't need to be driving anymore. I understand that there's, there's this sense of injustice that those other people aren't following the rules when you are. And these, you know, those other drivers are, are really being unsafe Mm -hmm. and they're putting everybody else around them, their lives in danger. So I thought, okay, duly noted. I hear you. I understand you. The act of, you know, just like, oh, there's a new piece of me. There's a new facet. Okay. Now she's got a
1: name. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's real. And what those other crazy drivers didn't need is another crazy driver, right? (laughs) They didn't need another (laughs) angry driver. Yeah. Yeah. So So it's, that was a good eye opener
0: for me. And it was um, helpful. Mm -hmm. Very helpful. We are, I've already known Cruella for years. He's my... He's my inner critic. He's my friend now. We're we're on speaking terms. The last time he chimed in and was ugly was, oh gosh, I think January. Um, I was doing a group a group coaching session and I recorded it for my mentor to listen to, and his first comment back was, "The music's terrible," and. I thought, oh, no, you know, listen back. And it was like, oh, God, there was a there's a glitch in Zoom. Zoom understood my music was so soft in the background. It was like a a background noise. So Zoom kind of staticed it. Mm-hmm. And then and then Cruella chimed in and just started chewing on that one sentence. Your music was terrible. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to, it was so bad. He's so disappointed. He's not going to let you teach any more of these. He's going to pull you out. He's going to take the cohort away from you. He's going to not even want to speak to you. And I was, and I just kind of, again, that stepping back and to, and, and observing. How, wow. None of those things are true. Mm-hmm. None of those things are true. Those are, those are opinions. Okay, Cruella, anything else? What else? What else you got? Let's hear it all. Mm-hmm. Get it all. You're a fraud. You're just winging it. Someone's going to find out you're terrible at this. I mean, on and on and on. Okay, Anything else? No. Yeah. Okay, I understand. But none of those things are true, honey. It's okay. And like you would tell a. um, I think of it like as an overprotective aunt who's who's more than a little neurotic, who's who's sitting in the backseat going, oh, my God, we're going to die. There's a pothole. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a pothole and I see it, and we can go around it. Get your hands off the wheel. I wouldn't smack them. I wouldn't yell at them. I would, I just, oh, honey, I know you're scared, but it's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So giving that part of yourself love and saying, shush, get your hands off the wheel now, sweetie. You can't drive.
1: Your license has been revoked. (laughs) I always think about it. And I mean, I'm not a parent, but I, um, uh, but I have an idea of what good parenting might be. Um,
0: you have been parented. About, so you do have experience upon which to draw
1: <laughs> or not, but, but I, <laughs> uh, sometimes by process of elimination, you know, yes. but it's, uh, um, I think about, you know, if you've got a child throwing a temper tantrum in a grocery store, you don't kick the child. You don't put your hand over its mouth, get on your knees and say, Hey, you seem upset. Yeah. Are you hungry? Are you tired? look, I'm going to get you what you need, but what I need from you yeah. is to shut up and get in the car, you know, it's like this or whatever yeah. it is, because for me, I was also trying to be really kind to all of them and realize that I also have to make boundaries with them too. I got to tell them what I need from them. I got to tell them when actually I I need, I need you to give me a break on this. Yeah. I've heard you, you know, and let's all be on the same team. It's, I think I told you that in the week before my TED talk and and the week since, I've been crippled with attention headache. And I had this moment the other night of I was in so much pain that I just asked, What is what is this pain? And then a bunch of them were like, You were so focused on preparing for the talk that you stopped talking to us two weeks ago. And oh. and we are we have things to tell you. And I was like, okay. All right. Okay. Well, what do you have to tell me? And then it was like, whew, and I'm like, okay, one at a time, one at a time. <laughs> Let's give it to me in doses I can handle. So it was a really, you know, another really interesting way into my physical experience to understand that. Yeah. Without meaning to, I had kind of shut them all up. Mm-hmm. And did you
0: explore their voices with, with just silence or stillness or writing or how did you,
1: how did you listen? I'm still working on it. I did. It is a whole pile of things. But uh, yeah, I, it's usually through still, stillness and silence. I have also used um, movement and um, and writing in the past. But right now, we're taking it easy. And they're wound up about some stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: figure it out. Yeah. Movement is, is so underutilized. Mm-hmm. As a, just as a beautiful way of expression and you can, and it's a great way to process anger and frustration, but it's also a great way to, um, I mean, if you think about it, if somebody, if you got the, the job off of your dreams or, you know, your sweetheart proposes to you or, you know, some, some monumental thing, your body is pretty, it does its own thing. You're jumping up and down, you're screaming, you're, those things are, are natural, um, Uh, release valves for all of those big 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 emotions yeah so sometimes it's just okay all right we'll let it out here's the steam
1: steam valve (laughs) yes yeah i i like acupuncture for that because it always feels like an actual piercing of the bum and i'm going to get acupuncture this afternoon for that reason yay yes acupuncture (laughs) is great for symptoms like that Mm -hmm.
0: there um my i have a, a we call him my voodoo doctor. He's so good. He's a chiropractor, but he also does like, here's some freeze dried, I don't know, eye of newt or (laughs) whatever he prescribes there. Mm -hmm. And it's all homeopathic stuff, but he also does acupressure and acupuncture. Mm -hmm. And, um, he says acupressure and acupuncture are fantastic for relieving immediate symptoms when there's something that's just so big or so overwhelming. It's great for, for just, here's a release valve.
1: Yeah. I realized that I just, I, there's a lot to process and I need support to process it because my, my way of doing it on my own with them um, was getting, I was getting a tidal wave. And so I, I need to be in the company of a helper to Yes. That That sounds ideal. (laughs) Yeah. I love that.
0: I love love that. And that's part of the self-care circle. You know, when you take care of when you really, really take care of yourself, spiritual, mental, emotional, creative, social, Mm, there's one more, physical, Mm -hmm. Um, you have such more capacity for everything else in your life. But man, when you're you're empty, when you're drained, or even when you're distracted, everything else suffers. So I'm really glad to hear that you're taking care of yourself. Thanks, me
1: too. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) In your work, what do you... What
1: do you wish that more people knew going in? You know, I think that the biggest hurdle in the beginning is I think a lot of people regard empathy practice as um, kind of a soft and emotional and vulnerable thing. And it it really doesn't have to be, you know, a lot of folks have felt I, I hear people say all the time, like, I'm not empathetic or, you know, that, that it doesn't come naturally to me. And I think some people feel like it's inaccessible because they're not, I I can't tell you how many people tell me all the time, like, I don't cry. That's not something that I, you know, I, I, it's not easy for me or I don't access that. And I don't think that's necessarily a barrier to practice. I think that, you know, we have so many people have so many different kinds of minds and so many different kinds of hearts and processing. And it's, it's not. I feel like empathy practice. I want I want people to know that empathy practice is a is a cognitive skill. It very much like a muscle that just needs exercise, and that it's the emotional response of of feeling or caring or feeling connected even to another person um, may or may not happen. But if you can if you can be curious, if you can ask questions, if you can honor difference, if you can have the skills to to receive someone who's unlike yourself and be curious about that person. Um, that's the practice. You know, what happens after that, you know, might surprise you, but, but this, this practice of um, it's about gaining the skills to see and hear more than you do right now. You know, it's not about correcting behavior or, or being really emotional or, or having it, you know, be feel natural or not. It's, it's inherently unnatural to be unself-centered You know, it is everything that I perceive comes through my eyes and my ears and my nose and my mouth and my hands. You know, it's like everything is filtered through me. Stepping outside of that is always going to feel unnatural. It should feel unnatural. It should feel like some kind of muscle that needs to be strengthened. Living in a world where, especially on social, we are fed things which are already in alignment with our point of view. Our empathy muscles are are getting weaker, right? You know, we're we're when we encounter something that we are opposed to, it now feels really uneasy or like an affront or like something super staticky. Um, whereas before I, before social media, I don't I don't remember having that same response. To, it was just like, oh, this either isn't for me or it is for me, or this is interesting. Someone else feels a different way, or you know, like this kind of it was it was a little bit more common to encounter difference. And I feel like that this, this world that we're living in now where folks are, it's very easy to stay in your bubble. It is very, very easy to stay in your comfort zone with people who already agree with you. And there's like constant training, quote unquote training for lack of a better word on social media of like what our people think about this issue. This is what, this is what we believe and how we feel. And as soon as a new thing comes up, it's, you got a bunch of people telling you you know, this is what our side thinks. And, um, uh, yuck, you know, uh, it's re- it's reinforcing that us versus
0: them mentality. And in my mind, yeah. it's all, it's, there's all us. It's all us. There's no them. Um, but I also understand that we as human animals, we, like you said, we can only see throughout through our own eyes. We, that, that is our default, but, mm-hmm. With this, this like the the work that I do, the work that you do, we're we're encouraging people to start noticing what it is they're feeling. Notice what their defaults are. Notice what an autopilot behavior or thought was, and how how it is they want to be, and invite them to move towards that in a conscious, um, intentional way. We'll be right back to the podcast in just a sec. You are a successful creative but you find yourself stuck at a crossroad, trying to change or re-engage your creativity or to find clarity. Maybe you know exactly what it is you want, but can't figure out how to get there. I get you. That's how it was for me. I didn't want to admit to myself that I couldn't get unstuck on my own, but I needed help. As a strong and independent creative, that first step was so hard. But I've done this work myself, as well as for hundreds of other people just like you. What you're longing for is actually within you. It's time. Apply for a free discovery call at cami.coach slash apply. Let's talk. Your future self thanks you.
1: Tell me a little bit more about Others Unlimited. Well, Others is an empathy training company that came from ethnographic research. So I, I was an ethnographic researcher working in innovation and design research and advertising strategy, brand strategy. My job was to do immersive field work. So I'm in the field with people one-on-one in their homes, at their jobs, I'm commuting with them, I'm going to events, I've been on dates with folks where I'm like observing them um, for different projects. It's, uh, <laughs> I've, been, I've done some weird projects. Um, My favorite one, actually, I did one on what people do first thing in the morning. And I actually like would come into their homes before they were awake, like someone would let me in and I would actually watch them wake up and do their morning routine. Um, Super creepy, but amazing. And so insightful, you know, turned out to be really interesting. So I can't even imagine. Yeah. Wow. That would be wild. So in order to do that, though, I've got to be able to first of all, I got to be prepared to receive absolutely any kind of person in whatever state they might be in. And not all of these people were quote unquote, my kind of people, you know, not all these people would have been people that I would have invited over for dinner. And so I had to find a way to not only be curious about someone, but to make them comfortable enough to open up and to share and to be vulnerable with me. And, and that vulnerability, it needs support, and so that support is what I call unconditional welcome, which is this practice of of receiving someone exactly as they are in the moment. And this this practice, this when I started to try to teach young ethnographers how to do this work, um, became essentially the curriculum that I teach now in terms of empathy practice. So I, others unlimited offers ethnographic research. Um, it also offers training for researchers on how to do ethnography. And then also for civilians and for just colleagues who want to communicate better, the empathy training skills, how do we listen better? How do we observe better? How do we witness ourselves and understand ourselves and receive one another?
0: What can people who go through that program expect to
1: notice different? I think the first thing that they notice are relationships with their colleagues. That's always you know the most immediate impact is you know i hear from people that you know doing the workshops with their colleagues makes them immediately aware of how disconnected they had been and how little they knew one another i mean many people have told me you know we've been working together for 7 years and i didn't even know where this guy was from and i didn't know that i didn't know that you know like something you know that simple and um and then over time uh, you know, honestly, I I just did I just did a longer term engagement with a with a team, and was able to give them a, a empathy kind of measurement survey before and after ninety days in order to see what the impact of this curriculum really was. And it was so interesting because I it's a it's a 50 statement survey. So it's 10 questions in five categories that I asked them to kind of measure how much they agree with these statements. And um, there are three different empathic categories. Effective empathy, which is that caring kind of empathy, is about the physical experience. It means that my body hurts when your body hurts. But in a company, I describe that as, am I hurt when, when you... In, in, in teams and in terms of their customers, you know, does our company benefit from the misfortune of our, of our audience? Like this is a, an important question to ask. So that's how I define somatic empathy in terms of business and cognitive empathy, which is about perspective taking, you know, am I able to see things from another point of view? Am I curious about someone I'm in conflict with? And then the other two categories were job performance. Like I feel like I'm working efficient, efficiently, and I'm able to do I'm doing a good job of my job. And the last one was self-care. And this one was, I'm taking care of myself. I'm taking care of my body, mind, heart, and spirit. I'm having, I am feel supported in my relationships. I'm connected with other people. And so um, my empathy training program is intended to teach the skills of cognitive empathy practice. What's interesting to me is that the biggest gains We're in effective empathy, caring for one another, and self-care, caring for the self. And I was so shocked by that. That is absolutely amazing. And I was so heartened by it too, that I'm just teaching them how to shift their point of view. And what they're learning is how to love themselves and care about the people that are close to them. And so I was kind of like, huh. Well, oh, that messes up my research but <laughs> or it messes up my marketing. Right. I'm like, I'm teaching cognitive empathy, but what you're going to get is love. <laughs> Dang is it. Not <laughs> a bad thing.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. I hope that others unlimited just thrives beyond your wildest dreams. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That would be fabulous. And how do people how would someone who says, oh my gosh, that sounds like exactly
1: what my company needs? What would be a first step? Um, well, check out othersunlimited.com and um, and also you can I you can reach out to me there, but having a conversation with me about what what you or your team needs, um, you know, what kind of what's what's the longing that needs to be met and um, and what's the outcome that you're looking for? And we can find a way to do it. I've I've worked with teams who just wanted a a team building event. Um, and I've worked with folks who really desperately needed the skills to generate actionable insights from their audiences. And what's really crazy is that this is the same skill set, right? So it's whether, whether you're needing to have better communications one-on-one or brand to audience, it's the same, it's the same skills. I, two, two clients that I've had who surprised me, um, the ACLU, who told me we actually didn't feel like we needed empathy training. We just kind of wanted to have a cool like icebreakery experience for our all team day. And and they were like, whoa, <laughs> this was really helpful and amazing, which is good. And the other was, you know, that I did this workshop, my kind of 101 workshop with a company specializing in qualitative research. And again, they were kind of like we thought we were already skilled here, and this gave us something to work up, work with and chew on. And um, and so I I love that the work is being received well, and that folks are finding places for it everywhere. And that's what I I hope to continue. You are you are
0: changing people's lives for the better, and that's amazing.
1: Bravo. It was it felt really natural and organic. You know, all the steps have been authentic, and that's been really important to me too. That mm-hmm. that I don't try to make it something it's not. And that, you know, I this is funny, my one of my really most important teachers in my life about, oh, I guess it was 13 years ago. Now I was asked to teach someone something that I felt I was not ready to teach. I didn't feel like I had the expertise or the credential. I hadn't been initiated in the way that I felt like I was supposed to be initiated. And I came to her about it. You know, it was something really personal to this person. And um, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to handle it badly. And my teacher said to me, Karen, do you know what it means to be initiated to teach? And I was like, no, she goes, it means to be asked. Like you've, you've been asked to teach this. And so there you are allowed to teach it because you've been asked to. And, and that really, really struck me. And I did. And the experience of teaching this thing that I wasn't sure I was ready to teach with this person who really wanted to learn it taught us both so much that um, I've kind of made it the rule that I don't try to teach things I haven't been asked to teach. And that when I am asked, I give them what they've asked me for to the best of my ability. And so this has been, you know, even the, even the ethnography training I gave a portfolio review at a design school and I met this kid who was a sophomore. And when I told him about my work, he said, I want you to teach me how to do that. And I felt like I was just getting started in my career and I didn't have, I didn't know how to teach that. And he's like, well, let me do an internship at your agency. And I was like, we don't even have any internships. There's no money. There's no nothing. And he kept after me. And I actually went back to my teacher and she said, what did I tell you before? What did I tell you? <laughs> You've been asked to teach. And so you'll teach. And so I was like, oh, I don't know what to do, man. So I, I was like, look, I, I don't have any money, but I'll I'll pay your train fare and your lunch. If you want to do this this summer, here's eight. This is an eight-week curriculum. We'll just try it. If it doesn't work for you, you can quit. Like, you know, I was kind of like, I'm not even, I don't know. And um, that curriculum is the foundation for what I'm doing now. And that's that's because of him. <laughs> his name is Darren i love him very much that summer was a big summer for us both and i i do credit him with giving me the the spark to create this and and for really receiving it and latching on and and you know and he is a wonderful designer now and just an incredible person so it is pretty rad another thing that i i do as a part of the empathy workshop is that at the end of it I have everyone write a statement beginning with the words, Now I see. And I ask them to identify something they see now that they didn't see before, because I am also on a mission to normalize changing your mind. You know, it is okay to not feel the same way about everything forever. You do not have to double down on old beliefs just because you've had them before. And that, you know, this this expansion, this stretchy thing needs to let something new in, you know? Beautiful. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. Oh my gosh. I, um, I do a similar thing just called say it another way where just kind of just as a writing exercise, how many, you know, can you say it as a metaphor? Can you say it as a, you know, as a, as an emotion statement, as a practical statement, as like, you know, it's also like drawing a diagram or just translating it into as many forms as one can. I had a, I had a good teacher some years ago who um, he, he would talk about being against efficiency That he's like, when you write your notes, then type them out on the computer, then write them on the whiteboard, then write them again on the paper, then draw, you know, he's like translate them into as many different mediums as you can. Cause it's going to, every single time you're going to understand it more and it's going to get distilled and it's going to shift. And every time you have to rewrite it, you're going to see something that could be a little better. And like this iterative process, um, helps reveal, you know, the nuggets in there. Isn't that, you just described human experience. I mean,
0: did I? <laughs> it's iterative. But it's a designer's experience for sure. Yeah, but it's the human experience. It's messy. It's not perfect. We, we mm-hmm. fail. We stumble. We get things wrong. We change our minds. We learn new things. We add new information. We, we grow and evolve and change and become. I think life is all about becoming. Cool. And we're never there. We're never actually mm. there. Thank you so much for this. For more good juju visit cami.coach C A M I coach